What's up, friends? Before we hop into the show, I got to tell you about the delicious, smooth Strava Craft Coffee. Guys, Strava is a rich CBD-infused coffee that you can purchase in K-cups for your Keurig, whole bean, or ground. And guys, I even have a cup of Strava Craft Joe to myself right now. And guys, it is not only delicious coffee, but it is infused with CBD, which helps with aches, pains, headaches, migraines, anything that's going on with your body, CBD helps relieve that, including the coffee jitters. It helps get rid of the jitters that you get from coffee. So it's it's really a two-in-one drink, and it is delicious as well. So make sure to get some for yourself. And when you use that magical code DNVR20, you'll get 20% off your online purchase. So check them out. It's Strava Craft Coffee. All right, Mace, let's hop into the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome into the DNVR Broncos podcast on this Thursday, middle of June edition. I'm your host, Zach Stevens, joined by my main man, Andrew Mason. Before we hop into the show, I got to tell you guys about our presenting sponsor, MSU Denver Online. Guys, MSU Denver puts an online dynamic education at your fingertips without forcing you to decide between earning a degree and living your life. I know a lot of you guys, MSU Denver is just in your backyard here in Denver, Colorado. But for some of you who are out of the state, out of the country, you can take advantage of everything MSU Denver Online has to offer as well. So go and check them out at msudenver.edu slash online. Whether you wanna just take a couple classes, whether you wanna finish your degree, or whether you wanna start a degree, they have over 40 online and hybrid programs and 750 classes. So let's make sure that we're all educated and go over to msudenver.edu slash online to check them out. My boy, Mace, what is up on this Thursday? How is life in Wisconsin? Life in Wisconsin is grand. I uh, went for a swim this morning before joining you here on the podcast. Last night, uh, took the family out for some frozen custard, a truly Midwestern delicacy. Mm. Mm, gosh, You're living was, the life. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's quite nice out here. My daughter went, uh, went, went, uh, ride, went horseback riding yesterday. Oh. So now she's uh, swimming in the pool. Some people are, uh, are, are over, uh, some neighbors and their, and their kids are over in the pool. It's, it's pretty grand here right now. The weather is, it was warm. It was perfect. Uh, it's, it's been nice. It's, Man, that's it's sounds... been a good, it's, it's been a good quasi vacation. Oh, that's awesome, Mason. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get a nice efficient pod in for the listeners and then let you back, uh, go back and jump into the pool. Any cheese curds have been in, in your future or past? Oh, I had some cheese curds at dinner a couple of nights ago. And I had now these were deep fried cheese curds. Ordinarily, I would have had time to pick up like a bag of just cheese curds that you'd put in the fridge that uh, aren't cooked, they're just the straight up curds themselves. But haven't had time yet. Now, 
one thing that has been altered as a result of the pandemic is the structure of farmers markets, of course. They're much more restricted. You have to order stuff in advance. There's a little more planning involved. In a normal summer when I would have come here, we would have gone over to the farmer's market at least once or twice that they have set up uh, in Madison. That hasn't happened yet. So I don't know if I'm going to get the, uh, the, the cheese curds. Maybe I'll get to a store. We're actually going to a place on Friday that is called the Mars Cheese Castle. Oh my goodness. So maybe I'll get some cheese curds then. <laughs> Man, that sounds like the place to get them. But I mean, if you have to settle for deep fried cheese curds, I don't think that's uh, uh, too much of an issue. You, you, it, it's fine. But at the same time, you can get them at Culver's and they have Culver's in Colorado now. That's true. That's so true. I'm, I'm looking. Yeah, I want the, the you know, it, hey, it's not squeaky bum Friday. <laughs> I, it's Thursday and I do want that squeak. And that squeak is something you get when they're fresh when, when they're they're fresh made and uh, oh my gosh it's delightful it's so funny and interesting that cheese can be squeaky but mace i spent uh 24 hours out in uh in madison wisconsin once and had a cheat had a had a real cheese curd there and yeah it is squeaky it kind of it squeaks against your teeth it is yep. bizarre and if i had not had 24 hours in wisconsin i would have no idea what this is yeah. Did you have any bratwurst or just the cheese curds? Uh, I d- yep, I did have a bratwurst. I, I, went, uh, I went full Wisconsin there. Okay. All you need is a, is a Spreckers. And of course, they've got uh, the beer, but they've also got soda and root beer. I actually, I ha- I actually saw a sign last night. Didn't, didn't get any, but I saw a sign at the frozen custard shop for Spreckers root beer. I know one of our listeners has brought that up as well. So uh, we'll try to make sure we get that before we head back west to Colorado over the weekend. And Mace, what Ryan and I tomorrow will be thinking of you and your squeaky cheese on Squeaky Bum Friday. <laughs> we'll have of course, to make you, it a you squeaky know what, one. But, but you know what food sandwiches is, is what, what food that we've talked about, what sandwich we've talked about is actually making news in the football world today. <laughs> the just the, the tea. tea. The just the tea sandwich because <laughs> – the Belk Bowl is now the Duke's Mayonnaise Bowl. And <laughs> because of that, they promoted it with Luke Keekley, recently retired from the Carolina Panthers, sitting down at a picnic table on a football field, making himself a tomato and mayonnaise sandwich. Now, he did put a little salt and pepper on it, so I guess I'm kind of the exception, but my Aunt Louise's tomatoes were that good. I didn't need salt and pepper. But he sits there, he has the salt, the pepper, the sliced tomato, the two slices of tomato, Duke's mayonnaise on white bread, and downs it, and, and that's how they promote the bowl. And so <laughs> you have some people who don't understand the majesty of the tomato and mayo sandwich. Well, Mason, were they? Maybe, well, I, oh, maybe this will, in your words, Zach, open your eyes, open <laughs> the eyes of the public to the simple beauty and tastiness of the tomato, tomato and mayo sandwich. Well, my eyes have been open to this sandwich, Mace, but I got to say your description of it, I actually built a better looking sandwich in my head than when I saw Luke Keekley do it. I mean, were, well, were they making the- this commercial um, uh, on a budget? Because it was, it was white bread that had, had nothing to it, uh, just a little slab of, of mayo and a 
thin slice of tomato. I was thinking yeah. we were doing like huge, thick beefsteak tomato uh, on, on some delicious bread and then some mayonnaise on it. And I could kind of get behind that, although I still think there's a few ingredients missing, but I could get behind that. The one that Luke made was, oh, terrible. Yeah, the tomato didn't look uh, very hearty there. I, I feel like they just went down to Harris Teeter, uh, said, okay, find a tomato. I don't care what it looks like. Instead of actually going and getting something that was vine ripened, something from a farmer's market that's, that's robust and juicy and has that classic tomato color. Yeah. Uh, that's, I feel like they, they got a little lazy in, the, in production. That being said, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. I guess we're going we're gonna to have to take some shortcuts here and there. We have to do things differently, like we're doing this pod remotely as we have been for the last three months. But that being said, they could have gotten their hands <laughs> on a better tomato than the one that Luke Keekley sliced and diced. And ate, or he didn't dice it, but he sliced it, put it on, his, on the bread and ate it. So they, they, they took the easy way out. They could have done better if they really wanted to sell the majesty of that sandwich at its best to a somewhat skeptical public, at least skeptical outside of the South. Yeah, Mace, they had an opportunity to take the Just the Tea sandwich that you introduced us earlier this week. They had an opportunity to hit a home run with it, and instead they ground it out to the pitcher. Uh, yeah. they, they didn't represent you well. Yeah, when I get back to Colorado, probably it'll take a week because I'm going to have to wait until the, uh, the farmer's market over on South Pearl, which is every Sunday morning. But I'll stand in line, wait, and I'll get over there, and I'll get some of those fresh tomatoes that I'm talking about. There are a couple <laughs> of vendors over there that have amazing tomatoes right there from right there in Colorado, and I will, I will get some of those tomatoes and show the world what a true tomato and mayo sandwich is all about oh i can't i can't wait and i i guess that'll do it for today's version of dnvr food podcast <laughs> <laughs> we yeah sorry if you came for football and we're just detouring off. but this is one of those moments when i saw that i'm like oh my gosh the worlds are colliding <laughs> yes they were they certainly were and uh, i guess we'll jump into broncos and football and mace you mentioned the pandemic a couple of times in the pandemic has hit the Broncos uh, family again, of course, with Kareem Jackson yesterday testing positive for COVID-19. He got the test earlier in the morning yesterday, got the results back, and he, in fact, did test positive for COVID. Right now, he says he has cold-like symptoms. He's back in Texas right now. Um, and it is interesting to note that he is saying that he does not believe that he got covid from the march that of course he organized on saturday june 6th he tested positive yesterday which was wednesday june 17th 11 days from there uh his doctor told him that the way his symptoms were he likely got it this past weekend um out in texas and of course texas is experiencing another big wave in covid right now um, so that, that, that's kind of the information we learned about Kareem yesterday. He needs to self-isolate for two weeks, and he's going to do that. But right now, it sounds like he, he's doing okay, just cold-like symptoms, and right now he's expected to make a full recovery. Yeah, so now that's two cases with the Broncos over the last couple months that we know about as far as the players because, of course, Vaughn Miller had it. And the fact that Vaughn Miller – it did make it through. I think everyone breathes a sigh of relief because with his asthma, he has an underlying 
condition that can that uh, can be exacerbated by COVID-19. So it was good to see Von Miller make it through. And I think uh, a good sign that uh, for Kareem Jackson, he believes he did not have it at uh, the rally back uh, back in Denver at Civic Center Park and through downtown a week and a half ago. I know he, he told Michael Spencer of CBS4 that uh, he started to feel badly after when he flew from Los Angeles to Houston. So it was. he took a red-eye flight back, said he was congested, had chills and a headache, and that led to the test uh, for, co- for the novel coronavirus. And uh, hopefully he'll recover and, uh, and be doing okay. Now, that being said, it, it's not every day, but we are seeing cases pop up around the NFL on a regular basis now. Because, of course, we had Ezekiel Elliott and some Cowboys and some Texans uh, test, positive, uh, test positive earlier this week. And so this sort of illuminates the reality of what the NFL is walking into if it's going to have a season and, and what it's going to be facing with players testing positive. Because and, unless, as Dr. Anthony Fauci suggests, you get everybody into a bubble, you're going to have positive cases. Yep. This isn't going away. Yep. No, it's not going away. And uh, when the NHL commissioner talked about uh, their initial plan about a month ago to, to return, he said, we understand that we're going to have cases come up and we're going to work with our doctors to make sure that we handle them the best way that people self-isolate, that need to self-isolate. Um, but one or two cases isn't going to shut the league down. But then he did say, if it gets to a point where we have to shut the league down, we're not going to be stupid about this. We, if it gets to that point, we're going to do that. And that's just living in reality. I understand that you know people don't want sports to shut down just because one person gets it. And, and I don't think it needs to. The medical experts say it doesn't need to. But um, you know, we, we don't really know how many people with the Texans and Cowboys had it, but Mace, what happens if in the middle of the season, half a team tests positive and, and, you know, then you only have 25 players and maybe, uh, you know, 20 of the 25 are all on defense. It, that's going to be very interesting. I really hope that we don't come across that, but the NFL needs to be preparing for this. And the last time Mace, you and I had this conversation uh, about COVID in the NFL, uh, we were very disappointed in the NFL because mm-hmm. that was when the NFL said, we have no contingency plans. We're not thinking about that because we, we're not going to have to think about that. And you and I said, boy, that is such a naive way of thinking of this. You need to have contingency plans. Well, the good thing is now, in many, many ways, the NFL it has contingency plans for the season. They have things that they can change. Uh, they're obviously making very strict protocols for when players come back. So the NFL is certainly, in my mind, handling it the right way right now. Yeah, and just because they're not saying, okay, this is our contingency plan and making that clear to the public, it doesn't mean that they have one. I mean, let's start with the schedule. First of all, effectively, you've got potentially four weeks built in of buffer because you have the week, the buy before the Super Bowl, you can get rid of that. You have the bye weeks in the regular season. And remember, every team has 
the same bye week as its week two opponent. So, for example, the Broncos and Steelers have the same bye. And thus, if they need to make up a, a week at some point, if they have to start this, the regular season a week later, then it becomes a very easy switch to say, okay, well, that week two game you're going to play when you'd have your bye. So there's that. And also, nothing confirmed on this yet, but the notion that you could play the Super Bowl a couple of weeks later if you could get everything cleared in, in Tampa at Raymond James Stadium, that still appears to be in play. So effectively, you could be looking at a four-week buffer that you have. That's four weeks that you can pause the season uh, to, try, to try to hopefully let a wave pass through, uh, figure out – an alternate plan if you have to do it. And then of course you don't want to shorten the season, but certainly the NFL had a 15 game season back in 1987, had a nine game season back in 1982, both years shortened by the strike. So it's something that is, is feasible. It's not what you want, but there are, are ways to get around it. But then, like you said, what if there's an outbreak for one team, but, it's isolated to that one team. What if, what if you have an outbreak for one team, but you're in, the, you're in the middle of the season, and then you start testing, say, the two or three other teams that they've, that they've played in recent weeks, and they have a cluster of cases, and then their opponents have a cluster of cases because this thing, just, this thing spreads. So it's – oh, boy. I mean, it's, it's dicey, and if you can't put – if you can't put the teams into a bubble the way you're doing it in the NHL and the NBA, then you're going to run the risk because got here, you know, players are going to go home. A lot of the, you know, they're, they're going to go to the grocery store. They're going to, uh, they're not going to be out in public extensively, but they're, they're going to be out and about players that have kids. If, if kids are back in school in the fall, cross your fingers that uh, they, they will be. I think parents everywhere would agree with me on this. <laughs> But kids are back in school. Who knows uh, what they're going to bring home? This is all where is everything in life kind of comes down to acceptable risk, including football. Now, what's interesting is if we talk about Kareem Jackson, there was something he said back on May 5th regarding COVID-19. He had a Zoom press conference with local media, and he was asked about the pandemic and the upcoming season. And this was what he said, quote, I just think for us, it doesn't make sense to play any games unless it is completely 100% safe for us to go out there. If there's any threat to us being able to contract COVID or of any way and spread to our families or anybody else that we're around, it just doesn't make sense. Then he adds stuff about fans and all that. But we'll get into that a little bit, but, you know. Well, I mean, and then Mace, the yes. Other players surely feel that way. Yes. Yeah. And, and that, that's, I think, what's very important. This wasn't, in my opinion, this wasn't one person. And, you know, the thousands of NFL players that there are, that there are one guy saying that he was concerned. Uh, I think he's speaking for a lot of his teammates. And Kareem has really taken on a big leadership role. And really, honestly, this offseason, Mace, Kareem Jackson has been the voice of the Denver Broncos. Yes, this is only his second season in Denver, but he's talked to the media more than anyone else this offseason. He was the one to lead the protest and the march for the Broncos. He was the one on the forefront of that. Um, and yesterday, Jackson kind of, or Kareem kind of doubled down on that. 
uh, when Mike Kliss talked to him, Mike asked him on whether uh, these recent COVID-19 cases among NFL players should raise some concern for training camps starting on July 28th. And Kareem said, there should have been concerns before guys starting tested positive. We're going to all be in close contact with each other. Of course, there's going to be guys coming down with it. And so that there, he said it on, on what'd you say, March 25th, May 25th. And now he said it again now. Um, and like I said, I think the important thing in here is that Kareem is speaking for more than just himself, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so as well. And, and so how many players feel this way? And at what point do we, does, do we start seeing players who don't want to play when do we start seeing a little bit of a public pushback? Yep. Is it something where they're going to, the players association in the league is going to have to work with something, work with some exceptions to say, okay, if a player does not want to play in this environment that he can basically skip a year and say, okay, you're not going to get paid for this season, but then, your contract will go forward to next year. So basically it's like you, you say this year didn't happen in any way, shape or form. And you put your contract basically in the freezer and you, you stop the clock on it. I, I wonder if things like this are going to come up because right now, yeah, everything kind of sounds, sounds good in terms of making a plan, but the closer you get and the more positive cases you have, does this cause some players to be a little bit, bit more public in how they feel about wanting to come back or not, or not wanting to come back? Well, and Macy, you talk about the closer we get maybe is when you see more players speaking out against coming back mm -hmm. right now. You kind of saw that in the NBA over this past right. week with uh, players, maybe not uh, individuals coming out, but as groups forming uh, and anonymously saying, we're not comfortable with some of these things. And of course, they, the NBA starts and gathers before the, uh, before the NFL. Um, and we saw just a week ago how strict the rules are going to be when players come back. That's the NFLPA sticking up for their players saying, well, we got to do everything we possibly can, even if coaches are going to think those rules are impossible, as Sean Payton responded to them uh, by saying. And I just think that this is the start. So that's going to be some interesting, uh, so very, something very interesting to follow over the next month. And Mace, you also touched on why the other sports you think are going to make it. And because they're in a bubble, specifically the NBA and the NHL. Well, yesterday, the NFL chief medical officer, Dr. Alan Sills, said, we do not feel it's practical or appropriate to construct a bubble. He said the league will rely on robust contact tracing, education, and testing. And quote, anyone who tests positive will be isolated until medically appropriate to return. Well, then this morning, Dr. Anthony Fauci, of course, the top uh, doctor in the country on the coronavirus, um, said if the NFL wants to have a season, they'll need to be in a bubble. And the NFL, what, one thing that, that, that I've given them credit for uh, since our last conversation about this, when, when I did not like the approach that the, the NFL was taking, was the NFL and every single memo they've said, they've said things can change. We're listening to the, to the medical experts on this. Um, and so it's interesting, and I'm curious to see how the NFL is going to respond to this with their medical expert saying, 
a bubble's not practical. I don't think that's one guy talking. I think that's the entire NFL talking right there. And then literally less than 24 hours, the top doctor <laughs> with this comes out and says, nope, you got to be in a bubble. Well, when you're talking about practicality, I think if there are people in the league discussing this, they're also talking about the economics of it. And let's just make, let's just compare and contrast the NBA to the NFL. The NBA has 35 people per team going down to Orlando to those three hotels at Walt Disney World. 35 guys <laughs> doesn't even – I mean, forget about the preseason rosters, which are up to 90. 35 guys doesn't even get you to a full 53-man roster. You, you're, not, you're not even playing a game with 35. You have 35 guys for a game. You're, you're dead in the water, basically. Yeah. So you start with 53. And plus, we're talking about expanded practice squads this year. The, the, there's been talk about expanded rosters. All these things are kind of, of being put into play. You have Bruce Arians, the coach of the Bucks, who suggested on a podcast with Chris Long that he may quarantine his third quarterback. So if there's an outbreak, and it, in, in that case, it would be Tom Brady and Blaine Gabbert, and they both come down with COVID, that he would have Ryan Griffin quarantined and say, okay, Griff, here's your shot, because he would like to have somebody who at least knows the scheme. Well, if you play that out, don't you want to have as many as 22 to 25 players who are separate? So maybe literally, let's say you've got a 75-man roster. Or let's say you have Wait, a how, six. how big of a roster means? A 75. <laughs> or let's kind of split the baby a little bit. Let's say that we've got a 60-man roster and a 15-man practice squad. You're probably t maybe you're taking ten guys, the bottom ten guys on your act on your sixty man roster, your practice squad. Maybe you're sequestering them away from the rest of the team, and that way you know that if there's an outbreak, you've got in theory enough guys to where you can pull a lineup together based on the players that you're separating from everybody else. I mean, literally, these guys be practicing off on their own on another field. So that, that's another logistical challenge. But then let's just kind of talk about the, the, the notion of an NFL bubble, 32 teams, times potentially 75 players, times add in 20 to 25 coaches per team, trainers, doctors, equipment staff, all of a sudden, you know, and, and if you want to bring in some massage therapists, that, that you're basically talking about a complement of 110, 115 people per team, and you're only playing once a week. The NBA, you have 35 per team, so about so a little more than one-third of the NFL complement, and you're playing every other day, so you've got more product, you've got, you've got more airtime, more chance to kind of make back some of the money uh, from the games being on, from more games being on television. So, yeah, I, when they talk about the bubble not being feasible, it's not just kind of medical, it's also economic, because a bubble requiring 115 guys times 32 teams Man, that's just, yeah, 
that's where you're talking about something not being feasible is in the raw numbers involved with it. Right. It's, it's a great point, Mace. And so it comes down to, to bubble or not to bubble. That is the okay. question that we're dealing with here. And then Mace also with that, uh, you just simply can't bubble because what the NHL and NBA have is the NBA one facility. They, they can, they uh-huh. can literally put a pretend bubble around it. And that's why it's called the bubble is because no one's supposed to be entering or leaving. Everyone's there. They're not, they shouldn't be getting on buses with people that aren't in that, aren't in that bubble. They, they won't be getting on planes. They won't be staying in new hotel rooms each and every week. I imagine it, each player is going to get their room and then they're going to be in that room the entire time. The uh, NHL, they're going to be one, one conference is going to be in one city. Another conference mm-hmm. is going to be in another city, and that's going to be uh, a little bubble as well. Now, it doesn't seem like it's going to be uh, as strict of a bubble um, as the NBA just because they're going to be in cities, but still, no travel involved. Well, Mason, mm-hmm. what we haven't talked about the NFL. No one's talked about the NFL gathering in one place, all 32 right. teams. It, it would be a bubble in every single city, and then you're traveling. And then is everyone staying in a hotel for the entire five months? And the timeline is different too, because in the NBA and the NHL, it's about two, two and a half months that, that players have to be in a bubble if you're in a, on a good team. Um, the NFL, every single team would need to be in this bubble for over double that time, at least five months. And if you're a good team, add six, maybe even seven months onto that. So that just so many things would make it so difficult to, for that bubble to exist in the NFL uh, as opposed to the other leagues. You mentioned the travel part of it. One thing that's interesting, um, this past weekend, the Australian Football League, which is uh, not rugby, but uh, what, you know, what they call footy down in Australia, the Australian Football League got restarted. And you actually had teams flying on the day of the game. Flew in, played the match, flew back. And because you've got a cluster of teams in, in Melbourne, for example, you actually had two teams from Melbourne that were on a flight together and uh, flew to Sydney to play their matches and then flew back. Now, I'm not saying you'd see NFL teams flying together, but the notion of same day travel. If the NFL is going to pull this off and they want to do everything to limit the contact points, this is something the NFL has to think about. And this may require some changing of kickoff times. Like for example, the Broncos have 1 p.m. Eastern times games scheduled against the Panthers, against the, the Patriots, against the Falcons. You'd have to take those, frankly, and toss them out the window. Every, every 1 o'clock game Eastern time on the East Coast, in order to have same-day travel for the Broncos, you would have to make that a 2.25 p.m. Mountain Time, 4.25 p.m. Eastern game to feasibly get that in. And re- but realistically, you could pull off same-day travel with everything but going from probably – the West Coast to the East Coast and vice versa. Other than that, you could probably do it. And even you might even be able to do East Coast to the West Coast uh, if you can get in the air early enough on the East Coast. So it's possible to take 
some of the contact points out and literally a team would land in the city you know they'd be in their warm-up suits they'd go they'd go and take the bus right to the stadium but these are things that the league's going to have to think about if they want if they want to pull it off and then you get to how the game is actually going to look and feel when you get out on the on the playing field if you've got limited capacity you've got limited capacity or even no fans at all we got a glimpse of that in the premier league uh, yesterday which kicked off with a couple of games yeah, Mace, I mean, so, some great points there. And uh, I've talked about how one of the things I've been impressed with with the NFL is how they're willing to listen to people. Well, Dr. Alan Sills, the guy that said yesterday there will be no bubble, just released uh, <laughs> a statement from Tom Pelissero, um responding to, to Dr. Fauci's uh, statement this morning that there will have to be a bubble. He said, Dr. Fauci has identified the important health and safety issues we and the NFL Players Association, together with our joint medical advisors, are addressing to mitigate the health risks to players, coaches, and other essential personnel. We are developing a comprehensive and rapid result testing program and rigorous protocols that call for a shared responsibility from everyone inside our football ecosystem. This is based on the collective guidance of public health officials, including the White House Task Force, the CDC, infectious disease experts, and other sports leagues. Make no mistake, this is no easy task. We will make adjustments as necessary to meet the public health environment as we prepare to play the 2020 season as scheduled with increased protocols and safety measures for all the players, personnel, and attendees. We'll be flexible and adaptable in this environment to adjust to the virus as needed. Flexible and adaptable. Those are two key words. (laughs) Yes, yes. And it shows that what we're talking about, everything we're talking about in terms of plans, scheduling, et cetera, this is a moving target, and the way it looks now is not necessarily the way it's going to look a month from now. Right. But this also says the thing that we worried about was the NFL kind of months ago charging ahead and saying we're going to have a full season, full stadiums, and all that. But underneath it all, they're working on contingency plans. Flexible and adaptable, those two words tell me that they have plenty of contingency plans and that again this is something that could end up looking different as the situation evolves yep is it going to be difficult to pull off this season if there is not a vaccine or therapy or or therapeutic treatment that works by early fall yeah it's going to be it's going to be difficult i think they'll i do i do think they will find a way even if it's not 16 games in the regular season, I do think they will find a way to have a viable season in terms of length and ultimately decide a champion. But everybody just has to adjust to the notion this is going to look and feel different, that there may be a pause in the middle of it, but just and just kind of roll with the punches a little bit. Now, the NFL does have the benefit of time and the benefit of being able to see these other sports with their bubbles being able to watch the Premier League. And I cite the Premier League in particular because on an NFL ownership level, there is no other sports organization that they keep an eye on more than the Premier League in terms of the global reach of it and how how they manage things. Of course, there's some cross-ownership involved between NFL owners and and soccer teams in England. And that's where you get into some of the kind of the, the ancillary things like yesterday playing in empty stadiums and having crowd noise. It was interesting. Actually, Manchester city did something where they had 
at both ends screens behind the goals where it looked like you, you had fans that were kind of on Zoom conference. So you could see some fans and you could see them reacting. But there were a couple of awkward moments. Like there was a mo- there was a late in the match, Eric Garcia just got plowed into by Ederson, Man City's goal- goalkeeper, and was knocked out and had to be carried off the pitch. And the crowd noise was still kind of reacting as though the game was going on. And so that, that's where it felt a little bit weird. You need to almost have some kind of murmur crowd noise ready for right. when a player is hurt. Kind of like on the Fox Sports broadcast, when there's an injured player, they don't play their ba-dum, ba-da-bum, their booming, <laughs> crashing theme. They have kind of the, the, the piano version of it you know it's kind of right. softer and uh, a little bit more downbeat <laughs> yeah <laughs> a little le- a little less energetic <laughs> yeah yeah and I mean that that'll be something very very interesting to follow is of course if fans will be allowed how many fans will be allowed we had an interesting conversation on slack yesterday where yes. some people uh w- with our company slack where some people believe there would be fans in the stadium uh, others, including myself, right now, I, I don't think there will be fans uh, at these games. And then, uh, you know, someone broke it down by saying, okay, the, the NFL makes this much on fans. Well, how much are they going to make if it's only 10% capacity, if it's 50%, right. if it's 5%, if they're allowing 500 people? And I just think we're two months away from games right now. And that is, that's very close for, for preseason games to, to just be around the corner. And right now you have uh, Colorado's a state that that's handled COVID well. And I think for like an outdoor venue, they're allowing a max of like 150 people. So let's say that number goes up to 500 in two months. Let's say it goes up to a thousand, 5,000. I think that number is going to have to go up and be in the tens of thousands. Right in order to have fans and make it profitable. You're not just going to have 500 people in a stadium. Yeah. It's the economic viability of it. And I, and this is, and part of this comes from a conversation I recently had with someone inside a power five athletic department said, okay, let's assume that we can get 10% capacity, but it has to be spread all over the stadium. So it's not like, you can have 10% capacity and have everybody on one side kind of like kind of like mile high was when the rapids played there where they would they would reduce the capacity and only open like the stand, the uh, the sections on the sidelines so that meant you only happened had to open the concession stands on the lower sideline and the, and the restrooms on the lower sideline so you could limit what you needed in terms of staffing if you are playing with distancing and they say okay you can, you've got the ability to have 10% of your listed capacities. And, for this, and this meant for this athletic department, you were talking about roughly 6,000 people in the stands. You could not, you would lose less money by not opening it all than opening the stadium to 6,000 fans spread all around, which meant that you had, which means that you have to have concession stands open on all levels you have to have restrooms open on all levels you've got to have ticket takers uh, to handle to handle fans coming in and coming in at a relatively slow pace because you're trying to have distancing and that's why if you're talking about fans in the stands 
you've got you want to do it safely but it also means you have to do it at a level where you're not going to lose money because if if it, if the broncos let's say that they can get 10 they can get 15% of capacity at empower field that puts them at approximately 11,400 or 15% puts them at 11,400 fans but you have to spread those fans all around the three levels all around the stadium which means you got to clean every restroom's got to be clean everything's got you've got to have concession stands open all three levels for fans to to get some food and, and beverage and whatever i'm sure you're not opening like all the portable stands that are that usually are there on the concourse but you'd have a lot of the main stands open which means you've got to have them all staffed do you find yourself in a scenario where you lose money by opening the venue and if that's the case, then I think you're going to see an empty stadium. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's very interesting uh, what they'll decide with that because I also think the NFL is going to take the approach that they did this offseason by saying um, if, if some stadiums can't have fans because of local guidelines and regulations, then no stadiums can have right. fans. Just because I, I don't think that a stadium in Colorado is going to be able to have 100% capacity yet one in New York or Texas is going to be able to have zero. I, I feel like if, if there's places around the country that aren't allowed to have fans, that the next best thing may be like 30%. And then you're probably, as a league, because you have to, you have to profit share, you're, you're not going to be making money on that. So, um, and also with the NFL, uh, the competitive advantage, they, they wanted everything to be the exact same for mm -hmm. every team this offseason. That's why they said, Everyone is shutting down their offices. Uh, I believe they did that at the end of March. And they said no one, regardless of local guidelines, is opening their offices back up until pretty much the beginning of June is yep. when they allowed those offices to open again. I think the NFL is going to do the same. And I have to imagine that crowd noise and crowd regulation and everything they do is going to be universal. And yeah. so whatever it is, I look forward to seeing how they do that. But Mesa, I mean, like you said, it's a fluid situation. The NFL is now willing to adapt. They've proven that. They've said it over and over again. I do think that there's going to be an NFL season uh, in some capacity. I don't think there'll be fans there. But at the end of the day, I mean, I know a lot of people want to attend these games. But at the end of the day, we want these players to be safe. We want the coaches to be safe. And we want to see some freaking football, especially with this Denver Broncos team that, I mean, th there hasn't been – this legitimate uh, of an excitement surrounding this team since Peyton Manning was here. And there, there's always hype and hope for the season, but this truly does feel different. It does. And this is where you say, okay, some season is better than none at all. And you don't want a season without fans, but in, in the stands, but that's still better than the alternative. If the alternative is just not having not having any kind of season. And that's not something that we want. I, you want to see where this Broncos team goes. You want to find out how Drew Locke develops. You want, and uh, you know, you don't, when you talk about some veterans, for example, you have a veteran laden defense. I don't want to see Vaughn Miller, Jarrell Casey, Kareem Jackson getting a year older and not playing this year. Right. And you can, take that around the league. I mean, how do you think they'd feel in Tampa if this season didn't happen? You yeah. signed Tom Brady. 
Yeah. And that means you might not get Tom Brady until he's 44 years old if there's not a season. There's going to – they will – I think even if it, if it looks and feels completely different, they will figure out a way to have a viable season. Yeah. I just – and as for fans, I do think you hit the nail on the head. It's going – the fans in the stands is probably going to be determined by which state slash municipality is the most restrictive on how many people can gather even outdoors at something like this. I mean, you hear in Texas at outdoor venues, they're talking about half capacity. The problem is Texas considers the Texans stadium and NRG stadium and AT&T stadium, Jerry world and Arlington to be indoor, even though they have retractable roofs. So there's a little there's a little bit of discussion that has to go on before even they can talk about half capacity. But let's say they say they ultimately decide, okay, yeah, Jerry World, if you open it up, NRG Stadium in Houston, if you open it up, we'll consider you outdoor venues and you can have fifty percent. Well, what are they doing in California? You know, if right. what if the 49ers can't have fans at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara and the Cowboys can have 40,000 fans at Jerry World. Right. And the, the NFL has always been a league that tries to have things be equal. I mean, for example, and I think this is sort of the perfect example. If one team's sideline communications go out, the other team's coaches have to take off their headsets and they can't use the sideline communications. Right. They, yeah. do, want, they do want an equitable environment. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's, it's 100% true, Mason. We're going to continue to follow this and, and talk about it when it needs to be talked about today with the news of Kareem Jackson coming down, with the back and forth about the bubble uh, and the recent updates. We had to talk about it. We, we don't want to talk about this every day with no. you guys, but this is, like Mason and I talked about before the start of this, this is the most important storyline for this NFL season <laughs> right now, for sports right now, for the world right now. And, of course, we want to keep it focused on sports and the Broncos and the NFL, which I think we have during this discussion. But it's something that we probably should talk about occasionally. <laughs> so thanks for rolling with us. And, and we have 15 comments, Mace, about football. So we'll get to those. But, guys, we don't have to wait till August for preseason football for sports to be back. We don't have to wait till September for the Broncos to kick off against the, Tex or against the Titans. Golf is here. We had golf this past weekend. And we have golf this coming weekend. And DraftKings Sportsbook is on top of it all, guys. With this full weekend ahead of golf with us, DraftKings has everything you could imagine. They've got tournament props. They've got player props. They've got hole-by-hole -hole props. And they have day-by-day -day props. Anything you could want uh, with the golf this weekend to bet on DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered and they're putting you in the center of the action with a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. So guys, make sure to go and check out DraftKings, uh, their website, their app. It's the America's top-rated sportsbook app. And guys, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your money at, at your convenience. And guys, they're offering special promotions throughout this weekend. So be there for the whole the whole promotions, the day-to-day -day promotions that they're offering. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the code DNVR when you sign up. For a limited time, all new users can get a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. That's right. 
DraftKings Sportsbook has a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. So don't forget, enter the code DNVR and get your sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. And if you win at DraftKings, congratulations. First of all, if you win at DraftKings, that meant you probably didn't go with my pick of the week. You went with the pick of either Zach Stevens or Ryan Konigsberg. But if you win, <laughs> you're going to want to celebrate. And what you want to celebrate with is delicious Breckenridge Brewery, the official beer of DNVR. You can buy it at your local grocery store at, or at our friends at Davidson's Liquors with two locations in Centennial and Highlands Ranch. And of course, you can also order that 15-can sampler through Drizzly. But you know what? You can find Breckenridge Brewery almost anywhere in the country, even here in Wisconsin. And I was able to find Breck Brews here in Wisconsin by using the Breck Beer Finder, which is on their website, was able to look at even here, you know, in the in the land of beer and cheese, where they take a lot of pride in their local brews. I was still able to find Breckenridge Brewery, which sits proudly alongside some of the great beers here in Wisconsin, such as New Glarus, a Strawberry Sky. That was a perfect accompaniment for nights by the pool here at my brother-in-law's place. But back in Denver, you can do more than just have your Breck brew. You can check out their farm, their restaurant, the farmhouse down at their Littleton Brewery. They need your help to keep that restaurant kicking during this crazy time. So guess what? If you use the code DNVR when you order from the farmhouse, you can get $5 off your meal. You can pick up your food, and you can get some beers down there. And, of course, the best selection of brick brews anywhere you're going to find down at the farmhouse. Call 303-803-1380 from noon to 8 p.m. to pick up, and they'll bring your to-go order out to your car for you. Have some of that Avalanche beer, that Hop Peak, the Colorado Core, the Vanilla Porter Jr., of course, and uh, my personal favorite, Straw Strawberry Sky, Breck Brew, the official beer of DNVR. Mm, Mace, you got me craving <laughs> a beer, and it's not even noon right now. I love it. All it's right. beer 30 somewhere. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and let's jump into the listeners' questions. First one coming in from Jimmy Balls. He says, hey, guys, so cool that you went through all the Broncos superlatives on the pod. I was the one who presented the superlatives in a comment a few weeks back, and it was an awesome surprise to hear you go through your answers today. By the way, I think the Casey Bond comparison that you guys were looking for is Magic and Kareem. My question for you guys is, which Broncos would benefit most from a shortened preseason? Thanks, guys. All right, Jimmy Ball. Sorry for uh, giving credit to Pauline and Waukesha. Jimmy, that was a great uh, topic for us to talk about yesterday, so thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, which Broncos benefit most from a shortened preseason? Well, I think there are certain guys who are going to have their preseason shortened anyway, even if it's the full uh, four games, because they're simply not going to play that much. I don't think you're going to see much of Vaughn Miller in the preseason, uh, no matter what length it is. I'm not sure you'll see much of Jawan James. You maybe want to get him up to speed a little bit, but I think they're going to be careful as he recovers from the knee problems that he had last year. You may not see much of Bryce Callahan as well. Basically, any guy who's injured or getting in his 30s, I don't think you're going to see too much of in the preseason. That means you're probably not going to see a lot of Jarrell Casey. You're going to 
throw him out there in the regular season, assume that he's ready to go. I, I, one guy I wonder about is Justin Simmons because, of course, he has not been on the Zoom meetings. He was at the, the rally, of course, but because he has not signed his franchise tender, he has not been on what passed for uh, OTAs. And uh, you wonder if the Broncos might try to ease him back a little bit just because he hasn't been kind of as actively involved, at least on the meeting side, as a lot of his teammates are. Yeah, yeah. And I would say this – I don't necessarily know if it benefits players. I mean, I know veterans like Vaughn will like it a lot more having a shortened preseason because they – think it's a waste for themselves anyway I know Vic will not like it he was very adamant last year about how important the preseason is for finding out who the best players are for the end of your roster and also developing players Um, and I think you know it'll hurt young players and the Broncos have a lot of those guys on their team so I don't really know if it benefits anyone it'll just benefit the mental aspect and the psyche of uh, a guy like Von Miller and veterans that don't need the preseason anyway Yep. Moving on. Next one from the Sandy man. Hey guys, I feel like I have a different perspective on the Melvin Gordon signing than y'all. I think signing Gordon was more about luck than it was about Lindsay. Last year, it was pretty obvious to me that Royce Freeman just didn't have it. Every time he was in the game, I felt there was very little threat of a run. So defenses could focus more on the past. For a young QB like Locke, that could really screw him if they know he's going to throw. So I think they signed Gordon to always have a serious threat on the field in the backfield. Defenses will always need to respect the run when either Lindsey or Gordon are on the field, thus making Locke's job that much easier. I believe Elway saw it all last year when Lindsey wasn't on the field, the run was dead, and they signed Gordon to make sure that didn't happen. This will truly be running back by committee back a running back by committee backfield and will only help Locke be more of a threat. Yeah, and and it, I mean that's a good way of looking at it. This offseason was surrounding Drew Locke with weapons. And of course, you look at it first. Uh, of the draft and you say okay KJ Hamler was a weapon Jerry Judy was a big weapon but you can't forget about Melvin Gordon when you talk about offensive weapons it's not just wide receivers it's running backs as well Uh, so I think this move I think it was for both Um, if if you believe that Philip Lindsay is the guy the number one running back I'm sorry but you're not going out and signing Melvin Gordon for eight million dollars making him the sixth highest paid running back in the league, not giving Phil anything. So I I do think that Melvin will be the one and Phil will be the two. Now I do think Phil touches the ball a lot more than a typical two will. Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier this week, I think they want Melvin to be a good number one and they want Phil to be the best number two running back in the entire league. I think that's the way that they're going to view it. Unless of course, Phil just, proves that that is totally wrong which i wouldn't be surprised if he does wouldn't be surprised either you don't you know what i i if you're an opponent you don't want to see philip Lindsay mad you don't want to see him improve it mode because that's when the best phil Lindsay comes out is when he's he's pushed when he's in a corner when someone says oh you don't think i can do this well, I'll prove you wrong. And he's done that at every stage of his career. And that's why I think the season is going to be fascinating because there may be a plan for how Phil Lindsay is going to be used over the course of the year. But I think Phil is going to blow up that plan when he shows just what he can do when he's got that chip on his shoulder. 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. Next one coming in from at yield faith slash Hingle McCringleberry slash Brick Tamlet. <laughs> so awesome to have Zach and RK in the DNVR Madden League. And I look forward to playing Zach twice this season. I'm one of your NFC South compatriots. Ah, are you the Saints, may I ask, Yield? He says, yesterday you two talked about the Broncos superlatives, and one player you briefly mentioned was Alexander Johnson. Having had no expectations from him last season and being wildly surprised, this season will definitely be different. What are some realistic expectations for him as far as his role in the defense and how you think he'd rank compared to the rest of the MLB? compared to the rest of the middle linebackers in the NFL. My second question, every non-Broncos fan I talk to who thinks we will suck brings up the same two reasons. One, Drew Locke will not be good. I have high hopes for him, uh, and I know most of us do. And two, and the other one I'm more intrigued by, is that they think it will take us a whole season to gel, especially on offense. How do you think it will take the team? How long do you think it will take the team to gel? And how would this affect the team's record? Thanks for the great pods and best of luck in the league the rest of the season. Yield fates. Nice. Um, well, let's talk about uh, Alexander Johnson because I'm, I don't want to get too in the weeds of things like tackle totals and so forth, but I would be disappointed if he is not in the top 10 to 15 inside linebackers in football. Yeah. A, this scheme helps him out perfectly. B, the energy that he played with, I think what you'll see this year is he'll have that same burst, that same excitement, that same hair on fire style, but having more familiarity with the scheme, having more experience, I think you're going to see it channeled a bit more. I think you're not going to see him out of position. I think you're going to see him be in the right place quite often using that speed and that explosiveness and the instincts that he possesses. I wouldn't be surprised if, Alexander Johnson when the season is over is in the Pro Bowl conversation yeah and that that would be awesome I personally am tempering my expectations just a little bit um, and I expect him to at least be an average middle linebacker at least um, and that's just my expectations I think his his ceiling is as high as it wants to go I think he can easily be in the top 10 as we saw him play last year I'm just not going into the season expecting that because this will be the first time he's a full-time starter, and I want to see how he responds to that. But he should at least be average, which, which would be good for the Broncos. Um, and then your second question, um, Mace, how long do you think it'll take the offense to gel? Because I think this is a very good question, and the Broncos have two things on their offense. They have so much talent, and they also have so much youth and inexperience. And those two things – can make for a very up and down season. And I think that's what we see from the Broncos. I think the Broncos end up at the end of the day being significantly better than the offense last year. But I think it's because you see some 35 point performances where the offense absolutely blows up and sparks and hits on every cylinder, maybe even a 40 point game. But I think that balances with a couple of 16, 18 sub 20 point games and in the end, that'll average out to be a good offense. And of course, as the season goes on, you'll get closer to, to consistency. But I think that you're going to win games that you shouldn't have because of the offense going off. And I think you'll lose a game or two that you probably should have won because the offense is inconsistent. So it, it's not going to gel right away. I think it's a very good point. But not gelling uh, it right away doesn't mean that they're not going to have success as well. Simply put. If you score 35 points one week 
and 13 the next week. That's 48 over two weeks. Divide that by two, that's 24 points per game. And I think you're going to see something like that this year. 24 points per game is a nice improvement for the Broncos. Now, that said, I think when the season ends, we will look at the league rankings in terms of yardage and points, and the Broncos are going to rank higher on the defensive side than on the offensive side. Right. And that's also something, I mean, that, that, that should be the first part of this conversation. And it's a great point to bring up Mace is this team. And I talked about it yesterday. This team is shifting from being a defensive team to an offensive team, but they're at the very, very beginning of that shift. The defense is still what should be driving this team. You just have the offense where weeks, it, it could be pushing through and really helping the defense, but it should be on the defense that carries them. So the inconsistencies from offense shouldn't be as big of a deal as it would be for teams without this good of a defense. I mean, I think this is going to be a top five defense this year. Yeah, me too. I don't think it's going to be a top five offense. Now, the key to maintaining a good defensive level is going to be how they draft and develop. And we've already seen some of that. Someone like Michael Ojemudia, for example, is going to be very important. Alexander Johnson, who we just mentioned, is going to be exceptionally vital. And then someone like Justin Simmons, if you can get him signed to that long-term deal before the franchise tag deadline, he's going to be integral to making sure that the defense maintains its level even as it goes through basically a transition over the next couple of years. But that said, one thing that is interesting, Zach, if the offense is – improving but doing so in fits and starts and is inconsistent but the defense is playing in a high level don't be surprised if down the stretch we see maybe the offense kind if it's if the Broncos lose a game or two because the offense is too aggressive maybe they pull the offense back a little bit play a little bit more conservative than than a lot of people would like knowing that you've got this defense that can carry the load and also knowing that you're sitting on Philip Philip Lindsay and Melvin Gordon, who can carry a more conservative game plan than perhaps we might all be expecting right now. Right. Yep. Mesa, that's a great point. Next one coming in from World of Suck, going position group by position group. How does this year's defense stack up against Super Bowl 50s D? And give me some odds here. How likely are we to wind up as the number one defense in the league? Well, World oh, of Suck, well, well. I think number- this is I think this is a, a great first segment question because I think this can be really in-depth world of suck and you know Ryan was talking about yesterday how he really wanted to talk about the defense more so maybe that's a topic maybe this is a first segment topic for tomorrow I I I love it but I won't be there so I'm going to give my answers right now (laughs) perfect Uh, okay defense all right unit by unit defensive line Still got to go with the 2015 defense because Malik Jackson was a force of nature and Derek Wolf played off him perfectly. Edge rushers, hmm, I got to go 2015 because it was deeper. Remember, you had Shaq Barrett coming in as a backup, Shane Ray coming in as a backup. I don't think the second teamers are quite as good. Inside linebackers, Marshall and Trevathan work very well together. I got to go with 2015. Safeties, I'm going with, with 2020 cornerbacks i'm going with 2015 so basically that's four out of five positions i'm giving you 2015 and the odds of being number one defense in the league hey i expect they're going to be top five i don't think they're going to be number one i'll give probably about 12 to one odds that they're number one okay 12 to one odds and mace i like what you said because i disagree 
with some things you said in there and we'll dive into it tomorrow. But um, yeah. You 12- saying I'm wrong? <laughs> I'm just saying I disagree, Mace. I would never say you're wrong. That's for darn sure. <laughs> okay. Polish <laughs> Filipino. Fellas, Philip Lindsay's tweet showed he clearly will, will play with an edge this year. Maybe think about other Broncos that either have a chip on their shoulder or something to prove this season. Out of the 22 starters, I count at least 11. How many can you think of? This could create a lightning in the bottle kind of season. So how many players have chips on their shoulder? Yeah, or something to prove. It's like, for example, <laughs> you know, Todd Davis may not have a chip on his shoulder. Right. But he's kind of playing for his future. He's playing for a good, a good next contract. He's got something to prove. Boy, for me, of the 22 starters uh, on offense and defense, I'm actually going to view it the opposite way. Who doesn't have anything to prove? Because I think that number's smaller. And I want to start with the offensive line. I don't think Dalton Reisner has much to prove. I think his job is pretty darn safe. Um, Graham Glasgow, same. Although you could say he wants to prove uh, the Lions wrong for letting him go. So one or two guys on the offensive line, everyone else certainly has tons to prove. Garrett Bowles, uh, Lloyd Cushenberry, and of course, Juwan James. Um, Melvin Gordon, he, he could prove to the Chargers, why'd you let me go? He has something to prove, of course, as well as Philip Lindsay as well. Corton Sutton can prove to the Broncos, but you don't need another number one receiver. Even though you drafted Jerry Judy, I'm that number one guy. And then, of course, Judy and Hamler, rookies, they have something to prove. Uh, Noah Fant, you can maybe – well, what he has to prove is that he can track the ball and, and be a consistent target downfield. So what is that, Mace? Two guys on offense that I don't think have anything to prove? Yeah, and uh... – I would even say Dalton Reiser's trying to prove that he can reach that uh, high level of guard that he can build off his rookie season. So I think on offense, literally the only guy I'm saying doesn't have any, that doesn't have anything to prove is, or a chip on the shoulder is Graham Glasgow because even Cortland Sutton is playing for a big contract on the defensive side. I think if Justin Simmons sign, if Justin Simmons signs a long-term contract, then literally it's only two guys that aren't playing for something or having a chip on their shoulder. Those guys would be both the safeties, Kareem Jackson and Justin Simmons. So that's three, maybe four guys that right. don't have something to prove or don't, or don't have a chip on their shoulder. And Mace, how about this? Kareem Jackson could have something to prove because the Broncos could move on from him relatively easy after this season in terms of the financial hit that they would take. So he needs to, he, he needs to prove, uh, that he's worth that money next year. So you can make the argument there that there's really only one guy on the defense. So, yeah, I mean, and, and of course, most of these NFL players, uh, I think, are going to say, of course, I have something to prove. And Philip Lindsay loves to put the chip on his shoulder. Some guys love that. So even if guys don't really feel that way, you'll see a lot of them still use that card. Yeah, exactly. So th- th- you're always going to look for, mo- for internal motivation. Now we got Polly from Waukesha. Hey guys, didn't intend to steal the thunder for Jimmy Balls and his excellent list of Broncos superlatives. So I dedicate this trivia quiz with answers below to him and all DMVR Broncos podcast listeners. Peace out, Polly from Waukesha. Uh, there's there's a lot here, so I don't think we're going to go through every question. But you know on what? This, this is read this the is, comment section. I was going to say this is really fun for um, listeners and subscribers to go in. He gives you a mm-hmm. quiz of 10 
Broncos trivia questions and then four more, which he doesn't have the answers to, and then gives you the answers underneath. But Mace, I'm, I'm going to quiz you on three of these. Have you seen okay. the answers? No. Okay. So I'm going to quiz you on three of them. Okay. Two. I'm going to go with number two. Who was the first team the Denver Broncos ever played? Boston Patriots. <laughs> do you know, do you have a year? Well, of course you know the year. 1960. Yep. Do you have a date? Oh, hell, I don't know. <laughs> Sometime in September. Yep. Mm. Yep. Wow. That's impressive though. Um, the New England Patriots own the record for most Super Bowl appearances overall with 11. The Denver Broncos and which two other teams are tied for second with eight appearances? Ah, you, of course you know this. Uh, Dallas and Pittsburgh. Yep. Bingo. And the last one I'll ask you. No, I got two more. Where did footballs get the name pigskins? Weren't they in, once made of pig bladders? <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow. And let's do this one. John Elway. No, that one's too easy. This one's a really tough no, one. No, no, we're not doing cheerleader <laughs> questions. <laughs> I know. I didn't. I don't. Think that I was... don't give a damn about the cheerleaders. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that was fair to do anyway. So Mace, three for three. Very, very impressive. Polly has some great other ones there. With yeah, his back. last so one sure there is a trick out. question. By the way, yes, it is. It is. I'm warning you. <laughs> <laughs> Next one coming in from Broncos, Sooners, New York Rangers. My boys. Hope your Thursday is popping off. It is. Thanks for riding with us, Broncos, Sooners, New York Rangers. Quick question. If Mace is on the pod, it's your lucky day. He's right here. I have always known about Anthony Miller, but I've never seen him play. Just too young when he was a Bronco. And I believe he was on San Diego before that. I'm curious, though. What was his style like? What receiver would you compare him to nowadays? Have a great day, guys. Ooh. I mean, I'm not a big fan of kind of the cross-era comparisons i mean he was a really smooth big play fast receiver uh both with a both with the broncos and with the chargers before that the interesting thing is that he kind of was made unnecessary by rod smith because when as rod smith emerged the broncos did not need to have somebody like Anthony Miller, who was a big, who was a big free agent signing uh, for the Broncos uh, when he when he first came in, and then they decided to part ways with him. So the other thing is, I know that Anthony Miller, uh, I'd heard rumblings that he, you know, he wasn't the best locker room guy when he was with the Broncos, and that was one reason why they were. Uh, willing to move on pretty quickly from him. They, they decided to go ahead and not re-sign him after the 1996 season and uh, went with Rod Smith and Ed McCaffrey as the, uh, as the starting receivers. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the Broncos Sooners New York Rangers goes on and said, was just listening to the pod and heard someone ask, what is Elway's less heralded best moment? To me, Elway's best play was versus Seattle in the early 90s. Duck under a de- he ducked under a defender who had him dead to right, springs back up and throws a strike deep to Shannon Sharp. Beautiful play. So, Mace, that was a question we were posed with yesterday. What is John Elway's best, least heralded moment that you can remember? Mm. I remember that play to Shannon Sharp in particular. Actually, I had 
I had Sharp on my fantasy team at the time, so I was more <laughs> geeked about the touchdown for Shannon Sharp than anything. So Mason, um, with, 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 with your fantasy team, is that where you would have to calculate it? Yes. There weren't all these fancy apps. You were, you were doing it, man. That's pretty mm-hmm. awesome. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. We used to, on Monday, I would buy the USA today sports section because we actually had defensive stats as well. And so I bought that. So I would have tackles, assists, sacks for all defensive players. Man, that is so cool. Okay, yeah. That, so you would have com- you would have your drafts together. You'd all get together and yeah, and we and and uh, it was multi year, so it carried over. Like you, you, you uh, we were. It was a dynasty league. So mm, that's awesome. So yeah, actually, a play that comes to mind, and it happened a few times, but it just showed off the depth and breadth of the John Elway athleticism. But I think in particular of against the Raiders in 1986 when he caught a touchdown pass. Oh yeah, they had they had a, that great call where uh, you know, Elway would hand the ball to Steve Sewell, and then John Elway would take off kind of on a, a wheel route type type of, of play, and, and he would often be open, and then the pass would come downfield, and he'd make the play. Just way it was a little bit of a show off thing on the part of the Broncos, but it was very effective. <laughs> yes, that that's a that's a great one, Mason. Mm-hmm. And speaking of showing off. Father's Day is just around the corner. Mm. And if you want to show off or if you want your dad to show off in style, man, you got to make sure that you hook him up with Manscaped or that you hook yourself up with Manscaped because you're going to be showing off the family jewels, whether it's to yourself, to your, your girlfriend or to your wife or to the world. You want to make sure that you're all trimmed up down there. So make sure to check out Manscaped, guys. Seriously, Father's Day, just a couple of days away. This would be a beautiful gift for your dad to make sure that the family jewels stay beautiful. So make sure to check out Manscaped. And guys, if you use the code DNVR20, you'll get 20% off your entire purchase plus free shipping, which is key. You don't have to tell your dad that you got a deal on his Father's Day gift. You just give him the best gift out there or Hook yourself up with one. DNVR20 gets you 20% off that purchase and free shipping. And guys, I'd recommend the perfect perfect package, which comes with the Lawnmower 3.0, which is honestly the best razor out there for uh, above the belt or below the belt. Also, the Crop Preserver, which is an anti-chafing deodorant, the Crop Reviver, a spray-on toner, and it also comes with the travel bag, disposable shaving mats, and the comfiest set of anti-chafing boxers you have ever worn. So check out Manscaped for Father's Day. We got it coming up. Put your order in today. Use that code DNVR20. Get 20% off and free shipping for yourself or your dad. And hey, buy two because you know what? You don't. I, I don't care what some of y'all talk about. You don't want to use the same thing north of the equator and south of the equator. You want two Manscapes devices for each hemisphere to make sure you get the job done and keep things clean you're absolutely right now if you do use manscaped it makes getting around the actual golf course easier but if you just want to stay in enjoy the weekend hang out maybe by the pool with your iphone or your ipad or whatever device you have but you still want to play golf well that's where our friends at WGT come in, of course. It's the most popular golf game in the world. It's also the official gaming partner of DMVR. Make sure you download WGT and join the DMVR Clubhouse by going to dmvrgolf.com. Yes, the DMVR Clubhouse is full, but 
We have the DNBR2 Clubhouse. You can join that and have access to all the same tournaments and fun that we're having over in the DNBR Clubhouse. If you download WGT, you're going to get the most realistic pre-golf game loved by more than 20 million players around the world. You can play anywhere you want, your couch, on the go, sitting outside by the pool. You can talk about your most memorable recent course, match, or shot played. Or you can play also in many different ways. You want to play a full round? You can do that on courses such as Pebble Beach, Beth Page Black, St. Andrews, Wolf Creek, the Ocean Course at Kiowa Island. If you want to play what's been called the toughest golf course in the world, you can do that on WGT. You can also play closest to the hole, or you can play Top Golf style games. Of course, WGT and Top Golf, they're together. And if you miss Top Golf, this is a good way to kind of scratch that itch until you can get back down to, to golf cart, to, to Top Golf. Pardon me. You can play head to head with other players and DMVR community members from around the world in tournaments and in real time. And you can, of course, play it on the web, on all your favorite mobile devices. And, hey, if you're in, if in real life, you've got equipment that you like, you can get the WGT virtual version as well. Titleist, Callaway, Ping, TaylorMade, and more. Go to, go to dnvrgolf.com and download WGT Golf today. Mm, one of my favorite games of all time. I absolutely love WGT. Let's get back to the listeners. Dan Burke says, tell me what you think about this hypothetical trade scenario. Say RK's Eagles call up the Broncos to inquire about Elijah Wilkinson following Brandon Brooks's injury. If they offered a fifth for him, would y'all take that? There's reports that the Eagles are looking for someone who can kick out to tackle if needed. And we know how much senior offensive assistant Rich Scangarello liked Wilkinson last year. A fifth for Wilkinson sounds like a good value, especially considering it's a contract year. But he's also the team's only, quote, reliable backup offensive lineman. If you didn't want to pick, you could probably get Sidney Jones in a player-for-a-player player trade. Y'all doing either of those? Hmm. Oh, boy. I'm more likely to do Sidney Jones than a player for, than a uh, fifth-round pick. Okay, why so? Just to g- give me a little more depth at cornerback. Yeah. Just add an- another person in that room and – Man, yeah. the Broncos gave Elijah Wilkinson a second-round tender, meaning if they, if any team wanted to take him, they'd have to give up a second-round pick for him. So I personally may do it for a fifth-round pick. I don't think the Broncos would, and it's not because he's competing with Garrett Bowles' left tackle. Dan, it's exactly what you said. It's, it's that backup versatility. That's valued so highly around the NFL. And I just think that you'd have to give up more than a fifth in order to do that. Yep. On to Briggsy. Guys, 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 how's the Broncos' best player question get asked? And neither of you guys mentioned the safeties that we're, we are both paying upwards of $10 million and paying both top safety money. I understand they may not be sexy picks, but Curie Cutie hasn't played a snap and his name is brought up, let alone the work Simmons has put in for the past two or three years. If we're projecting, maybe, but I feel like you guys completely skipped over one of our strongest positions on accident. Look, you can argue that Justin Simmons is the best player on this team right now. Second team all pro. So Mace, that was the question that that was one of uh, the, the things we picked yesterday was who is the Broncos best player. And the way that I viewed it was who is the best player right now? Who, who mm-hmm. can have the best season this coming year? The best player right now is Justin Simmons. All right. Well, apparently mm-hmm. uh, Briggsy <laughs> saying we needed Mace on the podcast yesterday. <laughs> 
So there's yeah. there's the representation and love for Justin Simmons. I mean, right now, today, pro- that he's proven it with what he did last year, and he's going into his prime. This At this moment, the Broncos' best player is Justin Simmons. You might have a different answer at the end of the year. If Bradley Chubb has the kind of season I expect he's going to have, I think the answer might be Bradley Chubb by week right. 17. But right now, it's Justin Simmons. And that that's totally fair. I think – one thing that makes this the best – now, if you would have asked what's the best position on the Broncos, I would have said safety because they, the consistency uh, and how both guys are 90, 90 players, like, like a, a 90 on Madden, I think that's what Justin Simmons and Kareem Jackson are. They are both A-minus players. They're both really, really good. And to have two A-minus players at one mm-hmm. position, it makes it the best in the league. I just, my argument for Vaughn was week one, he has the ceiling to be that 99. And that's just why I went with Vaughn. Uh, at the end of the season, though, I said, I don't believe it'll be Vaughn. But like right now, it's just the talent and the explosiveness is there for Vaughn. So, so that's why I went with him. But you're right, Justin Simmons is definitely in the conversation without a doubt. The other thing to consider on Vaughn Miller is. You know, he's, he's talked about how he had to deal with COVID earlier this offseason. Uh, what does that do for his stamina? Yeah. yeah. Are there long-term effects? It's just part of what we're, we're learning about this, about the novel coronavirus and the impact it has on people, especially when there are underlying conditions. That's a, it, it's, a, it's a really good point, Mace. Um, since my girlfriend is a, is a big-time runner, she's been – extremely worried about getting COVID, not just for the sickness that it has, but how long it impacts your lungs after. And just that makes me concerned for any Broncos that get it right now. I'm I'm really hoping that there's no longer long-term effects, but it is something that I don't think we can completely ignore. Yep. On the count Locula, my two favorite plays of the flea flicker and the corner blitz take the over under on these for the season. The flea flicker 0.25 per game average. That's basically (laughs) four in a season the blitz 0.75 game per game average that means basically 12 uh and i think he's referring to the, the corner blitz so the corner blitz 12 yeah. per season 12 in a season the flea flicker four in a season if you end up having 16 games does pat mcshur pat Shermer have a history history of whispering the heart fluttering flea flicker to his qbs who the headset love the count <laughs> i'm gonna take the under on both of these count, yeah. but I like, I like where you set the numbers. The flea flicker, I'm really taking the under. Um, maybe two at the most, honestly. Maybe three at the most, two realistically. And I think, honestly, one real, realistically. I think that's something you break out once in a season. And the mm-hmm. corner blitz, man, and Madden, this is something I use every other play. But in the NFL, it just doesn't seem to happen as much. So I'm also taking the under on that. Yeah, under on both. I think that's the smart play here. <laughs> yeah. Next one coming in from Vash the Man. My boys, you guys crack me, crack me up. Thanks for always keeping up with the entertainment. So my question is, how many more takeaways do you think our defense will be able to get? You asking me? <laughs> uh, asking you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, now putting us on the spot here. Um, I should have done some research on this one before because I always like to have. I always like to have some justification for what I'm going to say here. Last year, the Broncos, how many takeaways they have over the course of the season? Well, they had the historically slow start. 
Right. And I don't think history will repeat itself twice, especially under Vic Fangio's defense for a second year. I think it was clear that it took players a little bit of time to get the Vic Fangio defense under their feet. Um, but how many did they have in the final 12 games, Mace? Do you have that number up? I don't have that number up, no. Okay. Um, I, I think it'll be more than last year. Um, this, is, this is a team that is built for takeaways. When you have the pass rush and you have an excellent secondary, that is built for takeaways. It's built for strip sacks, and it's built for forcing quarterbacks to throw interceptions. Yeah, okay, so we got uh, last year's totals here um, coming up. Broncos finished the season with 17 takeaways, which was tied for 25th in the league. Yikes. Um, Last year, having 23 takeaways would have put you tied for 10th. 24 takeaways puts you in the top 10. I expect more from the defense this year. I'm going to call 24. So that's seven more takeaways should put the Broncos in the top 10, top 10 of the league in takeaways. So Mace, how many did they have last year? 17? 17. So that was an average of 1.4 in the final 12 games of the season. Yeah. Uh, so over 16 games, that comes out to 23-ish. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'll go with 23, 24. And they'll be right around top 10. I like that number a lot, Mace. Yeah, that's, that's logical. <laughs> so you, you approve of that. You approve of my logic. Well, I said 24 first. So you're just, <laughs> now you're saying 23 or 24. So Broncos only. This team has so many tight ends right now. I can't keep track of them all. Can you explain how many tight ends a team needs and which guys are certain or almost certain to, certain to not make the final roster? Usually you've got anywhere from three to four. Some of that depends on other uses. Like, for example, you, you sometimes will see it in a rare circumstance. A team might carry five if you've got a couple of tight ends that can play other positions, like fullback, if you're going to use fullback, or are going to have extensive special teams roles. So you almost start by saying Andrew Beck is kind of a different category because if the Broncos do utilize a fullback, it's going to be him because they trade Andy Janovich. And then you go from there and say, okay, you ha- have him. And I think after that, you'll see three pure tight ends on the 53-man roster. You start with Noah Fant. I think you'll see Albert Okwebunam obviously make the team because he's a fourth-round pick. And then you have the derby among Jeff Hireman, Troy Fumagalli, Jake Butt, if he's healthy, Austin Fort. Who do you think comes out of that? Well, Nick Vanette as well. And Nick Vanette, yep. And Nick Van- and Nick Vanette's going to make the team. So, right, yeah, not a lot of room for those other guys. No, and I was going to say the tight end position has actually been a very interesting, in a boring way, a very boring, interesting group to follow the last couple of years because they're outside of Noah Fant last year. The past many years, there hasn't been that name. Uh, and, and there hasn't been that set of two or three or four guys that you're like, okay, these are the dudes that we're moving forward with. Instead, it's been wide open. And it's been a competition every year. Mace, I don't think that competition really exists this year because no, I think, Noah yeah, Fant's I think... making it, Nick Vanette's making it, and just like you said, Albert Okuebunam is making it. And then, oh, man, one of those other guys that you listed, the Jake Butts, Jeff Hirons, Troy from Magali's, um, Austin Forts, they are really going to have to prove their worth and value in order to get a fourth spot. Otherwise, 
think it's pretty clear there's a big drop off after those top three. Yeah. Now Austin Fort could be a uh, could be on a practice squad. Um, I don't know that uh, Troy Fumagalli can be on the practice squad because he may have played too many games right. in in twenty in, in twenty nineteen. Now, of course, uh, the rules are a little bit different on the practice squad, so perhaps you know what there are there are exceptions to the you can have a couple of exceptions on the practice squad so i can see troy fumagalli being on the practice squad sure yeah i could too yeah. uh and, and Austin yeah because here it is you are allowed to you are allowed to have some practice squad players who have no more than two accrued seasons but have played any number of games you can actually have you can have four players that have no more than two accrued seasons but have played up to 32 regular season games in that time and you are actually allowed to have two practice squad players with any number of accrued seasons so this opens things up so i could see a scenario where troy fumagalli and austin fort both are on the practice squad mace could jake butt be on the practice squad too yeah because he could qual- he could qualify under the exception that you can have any number of recruit seasons. I think that's the way that Jake Butt stays with this organization and maybe stays in the NFL, honestly, mm-hmm. is by being on the practice squad and the Broncos keeping him around just because of the potential for high upside. And they, they maybe want to keep him around to see if he can stay healthy for an entire year and mm-hmm. then maybe have a chance to make the team next year. And with his injury history, other teams may not be willing to give him a, a roster spot. Right. The whole thing is rolling the dice on the waiver wire and you're going to take a calculated risk with these guys. But those, those exceptions, the fact that you can, that you are allowed to have four practice squad players that have up to two seasons in the league and have, and have played any number of games or the and that you can have two players who can ha- have any number of accrued seasons that can be on the practice squad. So you can even have older veterans as practice squad guys this opens the door for for guys to stay for guys to stick around if you can pass them through waivers now that being said jeff hireman is a vested veteran so he falls into a different category i don't if the broncos let him go he's not going to be on the practice squad somebody's going to pick him up i still think it's more likely that jeff hireman gets offloaded at some point in camp to a tight end needy team for a late round pick yeah i can see that as well and with jake butt you're at the point where if you do cut him and try to bring him back on the practice squad and another team picks him up off waivers, you're saying, you know, yep. good for you, Jake. Um, we, we wish you the best, but we're not heartbroken that you're not going to be coming back on our practice squad because they went out and drafted Albert Okuebunam. They already have their stud receiving tight end to Noah Fant. It, it wouldn't be a huge disappointment for the Broncos. Yeah, the, you got Albert O, and, don't, and again, you've also got Austin Forders coming off an ACL who showed a lot of promise last summer as well, and I think they want to see uh, more from him. So I think he's going to be in the mix too. The other Ryan. My boys! Interestingly, the last time the Broncos went three and out on their opening drive to start a season was in a game that was also played on a baseball diamond in 2005, like at Oakland last season. That game at Miami started at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time and was played in sweltering heat and humidity. The Dolphins soundly defeated the Broncos that day, 34-10. I remember it well. It was Nick Saban's first game as Dolphins head coach. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. 
I wanted to pick your brains about the returner positions. Following the Broncos' selection of KJ Hamler, Vic Fangio said, quote, it will take a lot for us to not still have Deontay Spencer do that, unquote. When Tom McMahon spoke with the media last week, he also seemed encouraged by Spencer. Do you think that Spencer will be the kicker and punt returner come week one, or do you think the Broncos will find it impossible to contain themselves from putting Hamler's dynamic speed and abilities to use at that position? I first think- of all, and first of all, and the other Ryan amends it, he said that before last year, he meant that before last year, that was the last time they started uh, with a three and out on their opening drive. So he's saying that the, the, the last two times the Broncos have started three and out on their opening drive of the regular season was on baseball fields. So, hey, you don't have to worry about that anymore now that, now that Oakland uh, is no longer an NFL venue and that the Raiders are playing in Vegas. So good for that. <laughs> yeah, and um, I totally lost my train of thought right there. Okay, okay, this the kit, the oh, returner yeah. thing. You know what? They have a plan for KJ Hamler on the offensive side, and I don't think they want to risk him as much on returns. And listening to Tom McMahon last week, that guy loves him some Deontay Spencer. Yeah, I think Deontay Spencer is the kickoff and punt returner in Week One, no question. Yep, and I think what it comes down to is exactly what you said, Mace. I don't think it has anything to do with KJ's ability in the return game. I think it has everything to do with how he picks up the offense and what role he has. And if he has that third receiver role, which I think everyone in Denver expects him to have, then I think there's no reason to put him back there, especially because they do like Deontay Spencer, signed him up after last year uh, again to be on the team for this year. So unless KJ falls off offensively, and then he shows that he's better than Deontay. That's the only way I see that happening. But that is certainly not in the cards for the Broncos. Great. Next one coming in from LDJ. Wow, Dr. Fauci is coming, uh, is confirming what I already believed. There will be no fans this year. Fortunately, the Broncos play the Chargers in LA week 16. By then, maybe, we'll be able to go uh, and me for the LA Broncos fans, but I don't know. Two questions. Number one, if Ryan is on the episode, um, I know he uses him. But if so, I have a question. Okay, so LDJ, Ryan is not here today. So why don't you leave us this question for uh, on today's pod so that Ryan can get to it tomorrow? And number mm-hmm. two, can you guys do a what-if podcast judging if things don't work out with certain people? Because to me, the big difference and why I feel Elway has had the best offseason in the league, all of Elway's acquisitions are, are questions. These past two years can be off the books um, the past two years can be off the books next year if things don't work out. Vaughn, Casey, Boye, Bosby, Kareem, Juwan James, Shelby, Callahan, Purcell, all can be out of here come next season. It'll be interesting to see who you think we'd retain and how we attack the offseason if these acquisitions don't work out. Mm-hmm. This is actually something that uh, I don't think we get into now because I, I want right now we're counting down to this season but I think if you if we get into the season and guys are struggling this is a legitimate discussion because let's just go through the contracts here in terms of the cap savings the Broncos would have if they let guys go and I'll throw in the dead money as well Vaughn Miller hate to say it but he you create 18 and these are all if you cut the guys before June 1 of next year in in the 2021 offseason Von Miller, you'd save eighteen million dollars. You'd only have four point one two five million of cap of of uh, dead money on the cap. Jawan James, 
eight million dollars, you'd have six, you save six million dollars of dead money. Kareem Jackson, ten million dollars saved, two point eight eight two million of dead money on the cap. And then of course you get to Jarrell Casey and AJ Boye, you would save twelve point two eight one million with Casey, thirteen point five million with Boye, and no dead money. All those figures, of course, from overthecap.com. So especially on the defensive side, if things come in at less than you expect, and I didn't even mention Bryce Callahan, you could save $7.382 million of, of cap space and only have $1.33 million of dead money created. You have some possibilities where if this defense fails to launch as you expect, you're going to be able to hit the reset button on it pretty quickly and bring in some new guys. Well, and Mesa, I, I even went into more detail on those numbers and what it means on the DNVR.com in a piece I posted yesterday titled, Many of the Broncos' Highest Paid Players Enter 2020 on Prove-It-Type Deals. So if you want even more info on that, uh, make sure to check out that piece. And Mace, like you said, it's certainly going to be a talking point if there's a slow start or if individual players have bad starts or bad seasons. There's plenty of flexibility for John Elway after this year. Yeah, and I mean, just looking right there at Casey Boye and Vaughn Miller and Kareem Jackson, so those are your veterans, and if they're not up to snuff, then you're looking at $53 million of cap space that you yep. can create. Yep, and, and even more with some of those other high-paid players on the team, so make sure to check out that article, and it is, it is incredible just how well it could set up for the Broncos. And it, it, what it's also going to do is it's going to make these players play like they're on prove-it deals this year. And we know when players are on prove-it deals, they sometimes have career years, just like Malik Jackson in 2015. So it's going, it's going to be a little even extra motivation for the Broncos and specifically their defense this year. Yep. Man, Mace, this was a fun one. Thank you guys for rolling with us. And before we're out of here, I got to tell you about Davidson's, which has two locations, one in Centennial and one in Highland Ranch. And guys, the weekend is almost here and there's no better place to get your weekend fun than at Davidson's. And guys, supporting our partners is supporting us. So make sure when you check out Davidson's, you tweet at them, you tweet at us, you show them that you're repping us. And guys, their sales floor is back up and running. So you can go in, ask any questions you may have, Look at the massive selection of Breck brews they have. Grab a 15-can Breck sampler when you're there, or you can get all of this delivered straight to your house. Make sure to download their app for incredible deals, sign up for their loyalty program, and see all they have to offer uh, in delivery, whether it's to your house, whether it's curbside delivery. So make sure to check out Davidson's to have tons of fun this weekend. Well, Mace, I had tons of fun with you today. Thank you so much for rolling with me. Enjoy Wisconsin. Enjoy your long weekend, safe travels, and have a blast, Mace. I will. Great hanging out with you as always, and uh, great being on the podcast. It's kind of kept me in rhythm over the course of the week. Uh, can't, be, can't wait to be back next week for the full live podcast weekend here on uh, the ND, DNBR.com as we start counting down to training camp, hopefully. Well, Mace, we will celebrate Squeaky Bum Friday tomorrow as you have some squeaky cheese curds <laughs> for us. So enjoy the rest of your trip. Thank you so much for rolling with us this week, Mace. And thank you all for rolling with us this week and today. And we will talk to you tomorrow. Have a great Thursday. <laughs>